this work of an architect is the search for yourself. And when you say yourself, it is not you, but it's humanity, you know, our own deeper consciousness you know, as we you're about to enter the Ak Young Podcast. Young Podcast. India's first and very own architecture podcast, where you'll hear the insights, experiences, and journeys from India's leading architects. No matter what your skill level is, together, we'll build on our knowledge and share architecture's greatest stories ever told. Now, here's your host, Manish Paul Simon. Hey guys, welcome back to yet another episode of the Ark Gyan Podcast. Today, I'm super stoked to be sharing with you guys the journey of Bijoy Ramachandran. He's the principal architect and founder of 100 Hands, an award-winning architecture studio based in Bangalore, who have been internationally recognized for their various projects spanning from institutions, apartments, hotels, museums, and even various competitions that they've gone on to win. In this episode, Bijoy not only takes us on his journey in architecture, right from studying in BMS College of Architecture to going and studying in MIT in the 1990s and then coming back, establishing 100 Hands. But also about what exactly is architecture and how architecture, when explored to its deepest depths, can really move and influence all our lives. I hope you guys learn a ton from this episode and also inspires you to create architecture which really leaves a mark on humanity and society. Now before I head to the episode, please do check out the show notes by going to arkyan.com slash 27. We write down the podcast show notes and also relevant links which you may find useful from what you listen to the episode. Now without further ado, this is Architecture and the Senses with Bijoy Ramachandran. Oh, you mean even before getting yeah, the architecture school? Before, yeah. yeah. No, I, it wasn't uh, one of those stories where, you know, from the age of five or something, I had, uh, I had, you know, so architecture was something that I really sort of stumbled upon uh, thanks to a, a teacher of mine. Okay. Uh, so in, in the 12th standard, usually there was, uh, you know, a, a kind of orientation program that my warden used to conduct. And so I had that orientation, he told me that, you know, why don't you try architecture? Okay. And so completely uh, on his advice, uh, you know, I, I started applying and finally made it into college in Bangalore. Okay. Yeah. So you studied in BMS, right? In BMS, yes. So how was the college time? How was your it college time? It was fantastic. Okay. It was fantastic. I think there was something about that time at BMS. Uh, I use the word that Brian Eno uses, you know, this idea of seniors. Right. Uh, that it isn't really about uh, your tutors or, you know, the, the library or anything. It's just a group of people that somehow serendipitously come together and then influence each other and make things, uh, you know, work, uh, you know, as a group. Okay. And so we have fantastic colleagues. I have amazing classmates. I have seniors and juniors, all of us working together. And most of us working on NASA. As, yes. as the main sort of focus of everything, so that it was a fantastic time at BMS. Right. And then you went on to do MI uh, master. I worked. MI. No, I, I worked for a year. I, uh, right after I graduated, I applied uh, to M, to a few uh, firms in Ahmedabad and worked at Doshi's office uh, right. with uh, his son-in-law Rajiv Patpalia. Okay. 
I worked for a year there, close to a year, and then went uh, abroad for my masters. So you didn't get to work with uh, Doji sir? No, not much. I was working on some LNT housing uh, with Rajiv. We were upstairs in a in a separate office. Okay. Computers were just about making their way into the office at that time. Okay. And, uh, we used something called Minicad, uh, the precursor of Vectorworks. Okay. And I remember watching printing. You know, in those days uh, there were these printers which had pens in them. And they, they were kind of line line, okay. line matrix, matrix printers and, and they would do these incredible sort of random uh, printing uh, you know tricks and we would all stand around the printer watching it come out. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> yeah it was fantastic okay and you were also involved in a lot of drafting and uh, yeah yeah so the bulk of the work was done by hand even in those days uh, the, the office actually taught us a lot about uh, this kind of an iterative process, you know, by which right. you make architecture. And so both Rajiv's uh, small studio within Sangat as well as the big studio which was engaged with the diamond poles. Uh, the work was all carried out through elaborate drawings, but also a very, very sort of uh, elaborate set of models uh, at various scales. Uh, and so the, the study of what you were doing was uh, paramount, that you're really looking at things carefully before you're showing it out to site. So that somehow I stayed with us. Yeah, okay, good. And then you went on to do masters in MIT, right? So That's you right. Tell us about your time there and how you applied and got yeah. your stuff. Um, I applied only to one college uh, uh, and in fact it, it was a long shot. Uh, Rajiv told me when I applied, uh, when, I, when I started work at Sangha that they wouldn't give me a recommendation unless I worked for two years. Okay. And I wasn't really that came to wait for two years to do my masters and so right after the first year I applied and uh, luckily I got it so Rajiv was uh, I think a bit disappointed that you know, I, I was already leaving uh, but uh, yeah MIT was uh, what can I say I mean it, 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 it's, it, it's great in hindsight to think about that experience and it was actually overwhelming when I was there for the two years. I mean, it was just, you were bombarded with stuff. Okay. And professors at MIT would talk about the MIT experience as being at the fountainhead in a way that sometimes, you know, you just got blown away by the force of the things coming at you. Okay. And then it was only after maybe five, ten years of having been through graduate school that things slowly start making sense. The stuff that you read or the chance encounters that you had or conversations. So MIT, while I was at school, was really overwhelming and it was just being bombarded constantly with information, with, uh, with deadlines. So it, it was great. I made some really good friends and, you know, also made friends with some of the great professors on urban studies and history who to this day are mentors to me. So that in that sense, it was fantastic, but it was, yeah, it was a tough two years. Okay, so you did masters in urban design. In it, it's called architecture and urbanism. Okay. Uh, so I mean, it's a very very open program. You had uh, just maybe around nine credits or something to collect over two years. Okay. Uh, and so most of the uh, courses were decided, uh, you know, with in consultation with your advisor. Right. So you could choose from anywhere at MIT in any department. You could also cross register at Harvard. And so just having that, uh, you know, huge amount of choice was also in some sense uh, paralyzing. That you just looked at all of these courses on offer and you didn't, you didn't know what the hell to do. So I had a wonderful advisor, a person called Julian Beinart, who also taught a great class on um, city form. Okay. And so 
with Jupin's help, uh, you know, I was able to structure a meaningful two years in MIT. Okay. Yeah. And there also was a lot of drafting and. Oh uh, uh, yeah, even it, yeah, it was still. But by the time I was at MIT, so was around 2002, 2003. Yeah. So I no, not 2003. I started at MIT in 1996. Okay. And I finished in 98. Okay. Uh, so. Uh, I mean, computers were making their entrance at MIT. In fact, my in my first year at MIT, I did a course on Photoshop and you know oh, right. entering. <laughs> just, um, I mean, spending all that money and doing a course on Photoshop. Uh, but it was it was the new thing, and everybody was interested in modeling. And so we were doing you know these. So I did a model, a beautiful model of the Schroeder House as part of that class. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it was it was still nascent, it wasn't, uh, it, everybody, everybody wasn't yet using computers. So, yeah, I was drawing by hand uh, and model making again at MIT as well. Yeah. Right, great. Yeah. And uh, before I jump into how you got started, so in retrospect, uh, like nowadays, most of us work with computers, right? mm-hmm. masters or masters. Right, right. So, ret- retrospect, when you uh, since you work with a lot of drafting and right. sketching, right. Right, do you feel that that has helped you uh, as an architect and uh, maybe refine the way you design? Well, well I, uh, yeah, I don't know any other way, and I, I don't know. So I, we have a lot of young, young kids who come to, to the office now who work very differently yeah, yeah. Uh, from the way I work, and I, I don't see that as being a negative or you know that being lesser of a process by any stretch of the imagination. I think it's just that our brains are wired a bit differently from the younger guys and okay. they're thinking about it and approaching the work, having that kind of understanding and sophisticated understanding of, our, of computers and processes uh, you know, that they offer. Uh, our ways are a little different and maybe a little slower and a bit more deliberate. Okay. Uh, and we're slower to come to conclusions because we aren't able to draw things to that level of detail, whereas the computer printout even when things are half baked, seems to look seem to look completely resolved. Yeah. And so it's this <laughs> fiction of the printout, you know, that wow, everything is fixed and actually maybe nothing else. Whereas when you're drawing by hand, till it isn't fixed, it shows that it's still a work in progress. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. So after you did masters, uh, did you start start off on your own, or did you also work? No, I worked in the U.S. I worked uh, with a great architect in Boston, a person called Fred Porter. Fred Porter and Colin Rowe uh, wrote that amazing book called Art City, and he, he was a the dean at Yale when I joined Fred's office. But in many ways, you know, when I look back at our own practice, I see so much of Fred in everything that we do, in the way that we work, and in the way that. Maybe even in the way that I talk and, you know, I mean, he, he has had a profound influence on me. Oh, great. Uh, a wonderful teacher and a really, you know, lovely, lovely person. He's no more, he passed away last year, uh, but left a great legacy of wonderful practitioners uh, in the U.S. and everywhere. And he was quite a well-known uh, person. And then after that, after my time, and, and of course there was Susie as well, so his partner was Fred Coulter and Susie Kim. Uh, who ran that practice. And then after that, I went uh, to New York and worked uh, with Cooper Robertson. Okay. Uh, so that was uh, Alex Cooper and Jacqueline Robertson, uh, who ran a predominantly, I mean, they did these very high-end houses, but they also did a lot of urban design work. Mm-hmm. Working. So I did, you know, worked on a plan for the city of New York, uh, in, in Philadelphia, etc. So various sort of urban schemes uh, as part of that. 
I, I guess you must have pretty much settled in US that time, right? So why did you decide to like come back to yeah. India? Uh, so yes, we were very settled. We were enjoying a great life in, in New York City, living in Park Slope and yeah, fantastic time. And then we have a baby. Okay. okay. <laughs> and that, uh, you know, Anjali was born in 2002. Uh, and we said, you know, uh, it, it was getting, uh, we always knew we'd come back at some point and I think Anjali was in a way the catalyst for that to happen. Uh, it was getting very difficult uh, for, because both of us were working and, you know, just managing all of that. And so, you know, Sunita and Sunita and I decided that we'd come back uh, and set up shop. Uh, so we'd come for a holiday in 2002 and we said, uh, you know, wow, things are really booming in India and we should, this is the time to strike. And so we came back in 2003. We were here and in uh, November we set up for Great, yeah. Alright, so, so uh, that's a really inspiring story like <laughs> from US and then back to India. So uh, where do you feel you got your first break breakthrough and hundred uh, has got to you? Know, yeah, I mean we've been very, very fortunate uh, because while I was in Cooper Robertson we worked on an orphanage in Trichy. Okay. Uh, with an American donor, so and and uh, the person who was given giving the land was a family in Trixie. It was a very large campus for five hundred children. Okay. Uh, nothing came of it. I mean, we worked on it, and you know, we reached a sort of master planning stage, and then the thing sort of fizzled out. And the the moment I came back, uh, we came back to India. Maybe a month or two months after we arrived in India, I get a call from Mark, you know, the, the, our client in the US. Okay. And he said, uh, where are you? You know, so I said, we've come back and I'm in India. So he said, great, because we've got a project for you. And so just out of the blue, I mean, with almost no, you know, not even uh, having done anything, we get this opportunity to do our first architectural project. And it's completely, you know, our good fortune that that happened. Because it did two things. One is, you know, the, the basic uh, driving force of that project is really money. Uh, mm -hmm. the, the orphanage was uh, to be built on almost next to the money because it's very okay. little to be had. Um, and it was architectural project. So, you know, you're talking about building right off the bat. Um, so when you think of it in that sense, you know, I always look at hope, that hope, uh, you know, project that we did, the orphanage, as the foundation for our practice in the sense of how one looks at the use of material, how frugally one is using resources. And so it's a great foundation for our practice and we're fortunate to have had that right at the beginning. Okay. And that's how you came up with the name as well, the Hundred uh, Hands? Hundred Hands is, yeah, my brother Pranjit gave us that name. It's basically because architecture is not the work of an individual. I mean, we yeah. depend, of course, on our one of the colleagues, but also the clients and the contractors. And in India, that's even more heightened because everybody has an opinion and it's very easy for people yeah. uh, to do things at sight. And so, you know, we are depending on the collaboration of so many people to make something uh, meaningful. So, 100 hands is notional, you know, it stands for that. Right. And uh, what were the different challenges uh, you faced starting off? Uh, well, what are the different challenges? I think that the biggest challenge for us was, you know, we had never built anything in India. And so working uh, on an architectural project right off the bat, uh, we struggled a little bit in just understanding the way things were made here, the processes by which you know, okay. things were done. Because it is, in, in some sense, it is quite rudimentary construction practice in India. Even today, I mean, we're doing things yeah. in a very, very sort of rudimentary way. 
Uh, of course, that's a, that's a challenge, but it's also a fantastic opportunity because it means that a lot of the stuff is made by hand, it's all custom. And so in that lies a great opportunity to make really sort of bespoke things mm -hmm. that you couldn't do anywhere else in the world. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, yeah, the, the challenge is also the opportunity of working in India, this kind of really ramshackle uh, project site and, you know, completely handmade buildings means also that these things are very, very unique and, and can never be made anywhere else. Yeah. For better or for worse. <laughs> yeah. So I'm a big fan of your work and uh, your architecture feels like, you know, there's a presence when you stand mm -hmm. between those buildings. So uh, what's your design process? How do you start? Um, we, so, uh, we, we do three things, I think. There, there are three simultaneous processes uh, usually. First is, of course, understanding the brief. So, you know, just to get, getting a sense of the program, getting a sense of, you know, the scale of things, getting a sense of the site, visiting that, you know, so that you kind of understand what the conditions are. Um, and then while doing the design itself, there's the, the, the process of drawing, so just sort of sketching out, getting a sense of the program, laying it out, and just making really rough drawings. Uh, but simultaneously also doing very, very quick three-dimensional studies in the computer and very good, very quick, you know, sketch models, mm -hmm. uh, which are just massing or just getting a sense of okay. so I think the, the core word probably is scale, just at the outset to understand what the scale of your endeavor, endeavor is, what exactly are we trying to do. Okay. That's one thing. So the, there was this wonderful architect who come from uh, Hyderabad, a person called Madhusudan. And he said something that, you know, later on it sort of struck me that on the one hand are these sort of physical responses. So the physical response to the site, the physical response to the program, just engaging with the commission itself. Mm -hmm. But then there's also a step maybe much before that, that is a continuous exercise that all architects are probably going through, which is an abstract question. And that's the question that Khan is asking early on, you know, what's the nature of this commission? That isn't a response to a physical condition. It's a, it's if you will, a philosophical position. What's, what is a school, or what is a home, or what is a, you know, public space? I mean, these questions are, they are nebulous sort of ideas of, of, of things that then may end up in the project or may not. But you start also with that. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand is this kind of philosophical idea, and on the other hand is this very pragmatic response to the conditions that you're presented with. Uh, the first one is a bit difficult to describe. I mean, I think it's something that over the course of a career, you start maybe seeing things a little bit more clearly. One hopes, I, I haven't yet, but okay, you, know, you, you get to a point maybe where you start understanding what the, the core meanings are. Mm -hmm. All of us are searching for that. I mean, yeah. whether knowingly or unknowingly, we're all trying to understand that. Uh, the, the other stuff of response to site and climate and context and all that, that's the easy bit. And so Madhusudan's great exhibition at the BIC where really all of his projects are trying to tackle that kind of really abstract notion of, uh, of architecture. It was just fantastic. And uh, but what about the client coming in the middle and saying, you know, well, keep yeah. your philosophy aside? And <laughs> we don't tell them about that. I mean, it depends. We, we sort of test it out early on and if they game to have those conversations, yes. But otherwise, I think, I mean, this is the great lesson from Doshi, you know, that 
actually the client is is your partner and okay. you have to bring him into your circle and that's your gift as a person who can negotiate who can impress who is really listening mm-hmm. uh, these are the gifts that you have to possess as an architect because without a client i mean we're not an artist you know khan used to say that giotto the great artist used to draw the canons with square wheels and paint the skies black but as an architect i can't do a canon with square wheels i have yeah. to make it work it has to move you know yeah. and so the client is is essential to our work and so to to come into a, a room with a client to have that in your mind that this guy is going to compromise my vision is i think a wrong way to approach it i think really the client is the enabler actually and, and the quicker you are able to understand what he wants really and to impress upon him what is valuable to you to have a real back and forth it doesn't always work i mean <laughs> try every time you know you're trying and okay but the 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 best projects are the ones that are closest to my heart for instance the packetary studio that we did which is probably our smallest project you know okay. 1600 square feet a real coming together of client and architect you know someone the client is basically musicians you know i mean he's riffing i'm riffing we you know this this back and forth was so fruitful that within 3 4 months we had a wonderful project you know just completely uh, Out of the blue, okay. and then the, and Neve is Neve and BIC yeah. are the other two examples of a great engagement with a client. Okay, someone who's really on your side, you know, trying to sort of really come into that conversation to further what it is okay. trying to do. So without a client, I think there is no. There are great examples of you know projects without great clients, but I think the client, if you're able to have that conversation, brings up the level of the project many notches. Right. Uh, so my personal favorite uh, of yours is the Alila. Uh, right. Yes. Yeah. So that was you did a collaboration with another architect. Yes. Yes. So yeah. uh, could you tell us more about this project? Yeah. So uh, just a little bit of background. So this is a project that was developed by my uh, my co-brother, as they say, my wife's sister's husband. Okay. okay. Who is Gautam Nambishan, uh, who runs a company called UK and Properties. And so they come into possession of this wonderful site, two acres around. Uh, I want to say it's around 50 feet. I don't know. I don't remember now. But it's a very long okay. site, narrow on the street okay. and very deep. Uh, and in a way, the site is the threshold between the city and the hinterland because at the back are all the farms, and and in the front was this very busy one. Right. right. Um, and he came to us and said, you know, would you guys be able to do this? And You know, at that point, I was really not really sure because it's very complicated—the mix of okay, housing and hotel, etc. So I proposed to him that we try and find a, a, a you know a foreign architect, maybe someone. So luckily, you know, everything worked out, and we got Alice and Morrison involved, who we are the biggest fans of. I mean, they everything that they do has this amazing, uh, both nonchalance but also. An incredible simplicity and obviousness. Right. That they are really looking at things and just trying to find the least path of least resistance to get something lovely done. So they agreed. Uh, their fees weren't astronomical, and and so it all worked <laughs> out. And uh, you know, and so Graham, Bob, and Chris, Graham Morrison, Bob Allies, and uh, Chris. Uh, I forget his last name. So Chris uh, came to uh, to Bangalore and we had them stay at West End. Mm-hmm. 
And just like great architects, you know, they immediately caught on to what the essential quality of Bangor is, of course, the weather, but this, the idea of West End, where everything is open, everything is, you know, you're always neither inside nor outside in this kind of in-between space, formed their core understanding of this place, and so Adila is really that diagram, now in a contemporary fashion, a series of deep verandas and lodges from where you can look out and prospect onto the park, you know, onto the, onto the setbacks. So it's, it's also a, another great lesson for us from Graham Morrison, from, you know, Eliza Morrison, that within the first, I think, month or so, they had already figured out the party of the scheme, mm-hmm. the way the structure would be organized, the way the circulation would be organized, mm-hmm. and the way the program was organized. So it's a real, really good, and there's a wonderful picture of a model um, that you know is on our website, which shows you that in that first month they had everything figured out okay. in terms of a party, the system that then will govern the way function and, and structure will work. You know, okay. um, they they were exceptional, and just in terms of the clarity with which they worked. Uh, of course, you know it was a long drawn out procedure. It took us maybe six years to do oh. uh, from design to completion, five five years maybe. Um, but yeah, I mean, every step of the way, Gautam was an incredible support. We did maybe four or five different room uh, mock-ups, one is to one, to check all wow. the details and everything. I mean, really, what a what a fantastic patron. Um, Even those balconies which are appropriate. Yeah, yeah, and all that. So mock-ups, 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 I and mean, we just did all kinds of stuff. Thanks to Gautam at that time. Boom time in Bangalore. Okay. <laughs> uh, and uh, it, it has a great clarity even today. You know, you walk into it, you understand the plan immediately. I mean, it's just this really rational. And yet, you know, and, and really it is Alice and Morrison's plan and, and rigor that a lot, not to compare it, something that may be very difficult to compare, but like Bauer's work, it has this clarity of the plan and yet transcends that from being just a banal plan to being a, a, something of real great quality. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know how you achieve that, it's something that you know, these days the masters know how to do. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, you spoke about the importance of finding alternative ways to build, right. especially to address climate issues. Mm-hmm. So uh, how have you uh, sort of implemented or maybe work, working on uh, Well, it's a, that's a tough question. I haven't really made much uh, you know, headway in that direction. We are now, in the past two years or so, we've now started working a lot with steel. Not that steel is any better than any other material, because its embodied energy is also very high, but at least it has it has the potential of life after. Okay. Uh, so, at least that gives it a little bit more, uh, you know, more of an advantage over concrete. Uh, and so we've, we've done, the first uh, one that we finished is a, is a small office building where the whole south and east facades are covered with this very, very light steel sort of frame and timber. Uh, so there we tested out all of the nut bolt joints, galvanizing all of those tricks. Uh, and so just to understand it. And now we're working on a couple of projects, one for Co-Native in Whitefield, which is, a, is predominantly a steel building uh, with two uh, masonry. Uh, service course, and then just in terms of scale, the largest one is the new building for the Indian Institute of Science, mm-hmm. which is a composite structure. It's got a concrete core, but everything then around it is made in steel. Okay. Um, 
Okay. I don't know if steel is really the future of uh, you know the way that we want to do things, but at least it has that advantage of an afterlife. Um, it's also quick to put together and you know all of the rest of it. But yeah, it's a, it's an important question, and I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. Okay. So, uh, your TEDx speech was uh, pretty interesting where you spoke mm-hmm. about architects of the senses and all that. Right. But uh, in terms of a larger scale, when you look at the city, right, and when you look at large scale projects, <coughs> how do we evoke uh, such uh, feelings in architecture? Well, because nowadays most of the architecture would be glass facades. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, so, how do we evoke that sense of place of shadow or sense of memory and uh, how do you evoke it? Uh, and there are great examples of, of you know, wonderful architects like Chipperfield, who continuously seems to be pulling these tricks out of the hat. Um, I mean, his buildings again have that incredible quality of being absolutely obvious in terms of plan and organization, but they evoke all kinds of sensations when you're there mm-hmm. through simple strategies of scale and proportion organizing a structure. I don't think it's really, uh, I, don't want to, I don't want to say that it's, uh, it's simple, but I don't think we're having that conversation at all. Okay. And that's really the problem. That as architects, uh, you know, when we're working on our projects, otherwise it's difficult to explain the kind of crap that is being produced. Mm-hmm. Because I don't think those conversations are really being had uh, in terms of all of these ambitions. The ambitions are limited to the ambitions of, you know, numbers or ambitions of cost or ambitions, those pragmatic responses that I was talking about earlier. I think our conversations are are at that level. Even when we are evaluating our own work, we talk about climate and we talk about the material and cost and all of those things. They're all valid parts of, you know, the equation. But we've forgotten to talk about the other more, if you you will, more, uh, uh, you know, Philosophical or more yeah. abstract uh, qualities that architecture needs to evoke, and we go to temples and we kind of feel it. But when we make our own, uh, you know, buildings, somehow that isn't part of our equation at all. Yeah. So I don't think it's 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 necessarily uh, something that is impossible to do, or that you know, we're, it's just that we're not making those, we're not having those conversations at all, uh, or with our clients, you know. Yeah. Yeah, though she had a lovely line in the first film, you know, where at the end uh, we're all standing in Sarkesh Rosa, and though she says, you know, if you bring a developer here, you think he won't like it, you know. So of course, you know, people and and that that is essentially though she's thing, you know, that you have to tap into the ambition that exists in all of our hearts. You know, we are all aspiring to be better, to make ourselves better, to make the world better. Everybody, I mean, nobody wants to, you know. Unless you're, of course, completely corrupted. But everybody has an aspiration. Every client who comes in here is willing to go a little bit, you know, yeah. a bit one step up, you know. Yeah. But you have to bring that to bear, you know. You have to, you have to show him circuit, you know, and say, isn't it lovely? And they say, it's fantastic. Yeah. Can we do a little bit of this, you know? So I don't think we even have that conversation. And so then, you know, you just start having really burn out. Yeah, because example being the bank road, metro stations and... Yeah, really. Unfortunate. Yeah. 
Yeah, there's something something amiss about just, and, and I, I don't think it's about architecture school. I think just generally in terms of how you know we talk about, like I'm looking at my own kids, you know, and, and they go to a school here, an international school, and after the sixth grade, they don't have art till their tenth standard. They don't have music till okay. they don't have music ever after that. It's okay. over, you know. How, how can it be a well-rounded education if you're not exposed to music and art as part of your everyday? In fact, it's not your one subject in the in the week. Yeah. It's every day to engage with art, every day to engage with music. So that it, those give you sensations that architecture somehow has stopped giving you those sensations. Raman's music moves you. Why isn't, where's that architecture that's going to move you? You feel, wow, what a place. So that's why I mean, every time that uh, you know, young students come, interns come, we always try and arrange a visit to IIM Bangalore. Okay. Because a great contemporary work, yeah. and it lifts your spirit. You, know, you go in there, and every time I've taken the kids in there, you know, they stop at that first world and they're like, my God, they've seen it in the photographs, they've seen it on the web, but being there is like, yeah. you know, you're just, it just moves. Yeah, exactly. There's a play between open and enclosed. Yeah, that's so many things. I mean, the scale, the way the landscape has not taken things over, and then it it evokes in you a memory of things that maybe you don't, you don't, you may not have personally experienced, but it's our collective memory as you know. That's what Korea talked about when he talked about deep structure. You know, some places you go, and everybody finds connection with it. Yeah. When we go to Rome and go to the Pantheon. It's not from our culture, but it still moves you, you know. I mean, you're like, my God, you know, what a place this is, you know. And what is that connection that binds all of us, you know? And if, if I mean, how, how do you have that conversation? I mean, it's a really internal. Wittgenstein said that, you know, that this work of an architect is the search for yourself. You know? And when you say yourself, it is not you, but it's humanity, you know, our own deeper consciousness, you know. So I'm sorry, I'm rambling, but yeah, but it's, no, it's that, very interesting. Makes some, sense as well, right? No, but some architecture does that. I mean, it brings you to a place where you have—it surprises you, like man, you know, what a what a experience. But then again, uh, an architect like B.B. Doshi also had his lows, uh, which was, for example, the diamond. Uh, yes, yes. Those projects. Yeah, no. So th- this this idea of a collective project—that uh, architecture isn't the sole creation of an individual. There's a fantastic uh, TED uh, speech, but TED, TED speech by. They talk by uh, Elizabeth Gilbert, you know, mm-hmm. the, the person who wrote Eat, Pray, Love, you know. Okay. And he, she says that, of course, you know, you're going to have the terrible lows, you're going to have the incredible highs. And it, you have to realize that both those incredible lows and incredible highs aren't because of you, that you didn't deserve it for something that you did. Mm-hmm. It's some arithmetic that then has sort of come now to this point, and this is the sum of that arithmetic. You know? Karma, okay. basically. And so the moment you remove yourself from the equation, you're, you're light, you know? you're, you're not now, oh shit, I put in so much effort and we didn't win the competition. No, no, there's some other math that came and, and then this is what happened. So she explains the diamond rules exactly like that, saying that some karmic balance was there, I had to listen to those abuses and now, you know, it has been settled, now I can move on and do other things, you know. So, yes, on the one hand, you're, you're putting in the effort and showing up every day. On the other hand, the end result is sometimes out of your okay, you know, control. 
Okay. And especially architecture where, you know, it's, you know, there's so many people involved, you know, clients, there's money, there's the contractors, consultants, and everybody has to contribute for it to become something. Now technology is playing a big role, right, in the way we practice as architects. And mm. So where do you see us architects go in the future, like with technology, uh, you know, changing the way it is changing? Uh, well, yes, recently we had a, a discussion about this with Naresh and Shumitro and Nisha and all that. And yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a good question. Uh, I think not only technology, but also just ecologically, I think so much of the way that we're doing, you know, constructing or doing our buildings is, is completely irrelevant, will soon be completely irrelevant. Uh, and, and just outright wrong. Uh, and I don't know the answer to your question, but I, I, I constantly am uh, worried about, you know, the same old, same old. And that, you know, we're just we're doing a house now, we're doing this Institute of Science building. And this question of, you know, how much are we going to consume to make this building is constantly playing on my mind. I don't have answers for it, but just, you know, trying to be frugal, trying to limit the amount of resources being used, etc. So technology on the one hand helps us immensely in making those calculations where earlier we couldn't do that. To really evaluate what yeah. it is you're doing in terms of resources. So we have, uh, I forget the name of the website, but yeah, I'll point you to it. There's a wonderful uh, World Bank uh, supported website where you feed in, of course, the location and all of it. And then you give them all of the details of your building. And they're very, very elaborate sort of, uh, you know, multiple choice uh, okay. tables. And it, it then calculates, based on your choices, what your carbon footprint is, okay. how much you're going to consume and what the impact of what you're doing is. Okay. It's a revelation because you don't, I mean, you don't think of it otherwise. And so we've, we've been doing that exercise, just consciously changing parameters to see Okay. What then it means, you know, over the course of this construction. So you're right to ask the question. It's a serious, uh, it's a serious issue, and I don't see. I haven't yet seen, you know, where where the, the road leads. And I'm sure you're aware of uh, building information modeling. Then yes, yeah. yeah. it's slowly taking up yes. the AAC industry. Yeah. So uh, do you think uh, it would be implemented in? Offices such as yours and uh, maybe the other few firms in India. Oh, for sure. I think we're behind the curve with regards to that. Again, another great way in which to monitor what you're doing then is a great because it's kind of a database at the, yeah. at the heart of it. And so these choices, then you see the results of these choices immediately. Uh, we haven't done it yet, and in fact, for the uh, Indian Institute of Science, there was talk originally right at the beginning when we started to make, uh, you know, all of our drawings with them, but, you know, because they, IIC didn't have them, and then consultants also, you know, yeah, just sort of getting into it, uh, we decided against it. I, we have to get on to that, yes. Alright. And uh, back in 2009, there was this video which you did with your brother, where you interviewed a lot of architects in Bangalore, so. You asked them about the state of architecture education and most of them replied that it was a very dismal state. Uh, so do you still feel that it's still in a dismal state in uh, India or it's been changed a bit? Uh, 
Yeah, just a, a correction that film in 2009, my brother wasn't involved. Okay. And uh, and it's a really tough movie to watch because of that. <laughs> it isn't really a film. It's it could it could make a good book or something. Uh, but your answer to your, to answer your question about education, I don't think things have changed. Things have deteriorated, and that's because of this uh, push. Uh, you know, the council of architecture has been on on this sort of incredible rush to. Uh, to make 500 schools of architecture in India, so there have been a lot of schools that have been given permissions to start uh, without any idea of how you're going to find teachers to teach the subjects and architecture unlike engineering, or, you know, maybe engineering is also not easy to teach but architecture is like we were discussing, it's got all of these abstract and strange conditions so how do you teach it? You know, how do you get someone interested in it? How do you get them to pursue things? Because it is, it is like teaching an art. You know, it is yeah. uh, to some extent. Of course, it has its technical aspects as well. But you have to get someone excited about it to 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 push them over that edge, and then now they're you know on their own. Yeah, um, that's the only thing a teacher can do. And then you go out there, you find your own way. You know, as an architect. Uh, but with you know, I don't know how many we have. Twenty six. Colleges in Bangalore alone. I mean, where are those teachers? I mean, there are 80 kids in every batch. Yeah. Who's teaching them? I mean, what? What? Uh, so yeah, it is overwhelming just to think about it. And then now, of course, you probably are aware that we get so many interns <laughs> applying for jobs. It breaks my heart to imagine that you know a lot of them probably get into you know offices that you know are just not really doing much and you know struggling away to find jobs, etc. So. It's not a good time. Um, and it's put in more work for you to screen and uh, find the best. We are not very thorough with it. I was talking to, you know, uh, these guys from Brio, uh, Robert and Shefali, and they were saying that, you know, they've made all of these um, check, sort of uh, thresholds. So if it was uh, blind copied or it was mass copied, then the guy is cancelled. <laughs> if it's not addressed to Robert or Shefali, it's cancelled. If it isn't, uh, you know, uh, uh, Know, a specific mail that tells you about the practice and why you're applying the practice cancelled. So then you whittle down a little bit. <laughs> I think you spill the beans right now. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, but it's tough. I mean, even in spite of all that, he was saying they still, you know, I have at least, I don't know, 15 resumes every day during the training season. Oh, wow. and, and so, how do you even go through and give everybody their fair share? Because yeah. everybody's spending a lot of time on their portfolios. And it's a tough, tough. Uh, uh, being a student is not easy anymore. You're also bombarded with so much information that it's really confusing time as an architect. Yeah. You know, as a young architect who's coming out, the ways are not clear. I mean, they weren't clear earlier, but it's become even foggier now. Where do I go? What do I do? And you're also involved in a lot of juries. And I teach actually. I go twice a week to BMS. Okay. I'm uh, part of the master's program. Okay. Um, so. Yeah, uh, I am involved in college and now, you know, I have just recently been uh, appointed on, uh, I'm part of the Board of Studies for the Vishweshriya Technical okay. University, which is the biggest university in Karnataka. We've just started our term as uh, part of the BOS and so hopefully, you know, we'll get a chance to take a look at the syllabus and that's the other thing. I mean, we, when we went to college, we were in the early scheme. So we had one year and basically four months of that year we didn't do much, okay. NASA primarily and then the next whatever four months or whatever we spent uh, you know, trying to finish our coursework. 
But it's now, I think it's overwhelming the amount of stuff you have to complete in the semester. It's just, it's just you have no time to do anything else. All right. And uh, coming back to architecture, when we talk about constraints, right? In India, mm-hmm. there's something called Vastu, which is sort of a constraint. Yeah. So, do you feel that it's uh, sort of a constraint, or is I'm sure it will be part of most of your residences? And uh, uh, yeah, we we've, we've not done too many residences. I think we've done three houses in 16 years. Okay. <laughs> and in none of those three houses was Vastu a oh, okay. constraint. Right. So I haven't had uh, great experience with Vastu. Um, uh, look, I mean, it, it, it's it's something that is difficult to uh, to argue with the client about. And um, I mean, I look at uh, stuff that you know Mohe produces these uh, great uh, housing projects where also you know some Vastu has been okay. you know, applied. And so there is a way around it. I mean, if you're clever and you know there are there are ways to do it. Uh, we, we don't have much experience with it. Our institution, we do a lot of institutional work and in that it's very rare and it comes into the picture. Right. In terms of the East, maybe Max. Alright. Alright, so so we'll just uh, quickly go into uh, the quick fire round. Okay. And wow. I'll ask you some bunch of questions. Okay. So which book has probably inspired you the most? Uh, I'd say Thinking Hand and Eyes of the Skin. Both Palazzo's books. Okay. Yeah, is important books for. Yeah, I, I would say that if, if you can read, if an architect can read it, it's quite inspiring and opens. Okay. That lecture, the TEDx uh, lecture, is a complete uh, sort of ripoff of okay. Palazzo's uh, Eyes of the Skin. Um, yeah, so those two books, I'd say. Right. Who's your favorite uh, favorite artist in music? Oh, uh, well. It's a cliche, but I, I love the Beatles. Um, I love Bob Dylan. Um, who else? I've recently got on to Billie Eilish, and she's fantastic. Okay. Um, yeah, my daughter is my great source of information. Okay. What's new? Yeah. So you uh, stayed in a couple of cities, right? So which city would you consider your favorite? Uh, I like Bangalore, but I I be really and I really enjoyed living in Boston. Okay. It was, uh, yeah, it's a great city, yeah. also because of the friends, I guess, and Fred. Okay, great. Yeah. Um, so, what's your favorite moment uh, throughout uh, any like, any day or uh, What's my favorite moment? Uh, I don't know. I've, I like mornings. Uh, mornings are good uh, in the office, uh, in the morning, uh, usually very productive, it's quiet. Uh, so that, that I enjoy, and I enjoy getting back home in the evening. Traffic? No, no, <laughs> getting back, like reaching okay. <laughs> the traffic. Um, okay. When the kids and our cat and Sunni, yeah, just hanging out at home towards the end of the day, it's, it's always very really relaxing. Uh, what does a daily routine in Pajoy Ramachandran's life look like? Daily routine, we wake up at 5.55, um, pack the kids off to school, uh, I'll make breakfast and yeah, Sunni and I have uh, have a routine in the morning and then uh, some some days I go back to sleep which are which are fantastic <laughs> another hour or so of sleep and then yeah I'm at the office usually by around maybe nine thirty or ten not very early um, yeah quite uneventful lunch uh, we have lunch on three days a week and the other days I usually go either to only place or to 
Exactly, we have a book and so okay. that's time like that. Yeah, afternoons on Wednesday. So Wednesdays are the fun days in the office. We usually have something on the other on Wednesday, movie screening. Oh, nice. So in fact, tomorrow we can't have it. So today we have uh, our interns introducing themselves. Oh, okay. The new interns. Okay. If, yeah, you're welcome to stay. Okay. If you have a time. Uh, so right. We have uh, three new, four new interns presenting, and one of our old interns is talking about a book by Simon Unwin. Okay. Uh, on metaphors. So you play like a key role in mentoring most of your uh, architects in terms of... Yeah, so our, our office is, I, I wouldn't use the word mentoring. Like how you had a mentor in the US, right? Yeah, but I'm not like Fred at all. <laughs> I wish I were. Okay. Um, our office is very, very sort of open structured. So okay. I don't sit with anybody or guide them or you know, mentor them, tell them okay. what to do, etc. Some of them take the initiative and they get more out of their time here than others. Right, right. Uh, so it's really up to the individual. Uh, the, the office is, has, has a fairly good collection of books and you know, there's these events on Wednesdays. So hopefully some of that drops off and you know, they get something okay. out of it, out of their own initiative, you know, because I push them to. Okay. to and you also have a lot of uh, senior architects or Not too many. We have, uh, uh, I would say, maybe two seniorish architects who've been here maybe for two years, two, three okay. years. You don't have anybody older than that. Yeah, I think the lifespan also is <laughs> <laughs> yeah. getting less, right? So how long? No, it's, a, it's a roadblock that practices like ours. Uh, I don't know how others are doing it, but a lot of my friends, uh, you know, you run, a, you run into a wall after a certain point in time because it's a lot more lucrative for people to start up on their own. Yeah, yeah. And in India, it's easy to do that. And so we lose a lot, lot of people to their own practices or to master's degrees okay. so they disappear after two years. Okay. So what's your take on people starting off as young, as soon as they graduate college, I mean, there's hardly any experience in that, right? But still they just start off. Well, it's tough to generalize. I couldn't do that myself. Uh, I was a bit diffident about it and I thought I need to work a lot before I started. There are some kids who are incredibly prescient and they, they know they they precocious and they, they understand things and they're able to do it quickly. It's also, I don't know, I mean also uh, sometimes opportunity comes your way that you can't refuse. So okay. someone, you know, we had a wonderful architect here for, for, for a year and she had to go away because she got this great job in Delhi, I mean in Bombay and uh, I don't know what came of it, but there was this opportunity that you know then was tailor made for her to start. Right. right. Yes. So sometimes I mean, there are many factors that affect how these things pan out. Uh, we would like for them to stay forever, but yeah, that hasn't happened. I mean, the longest I think someone stayed here is maybe seven years. Okay. He just recently left, broke our heart, but <laughs> it's inevitable. Yeah. This, All right. Yeah. The way it works. We all left offices to start our own practice. Yeah. All right. So I know you can't give a brief answer to this, but uh, since you've been in Bangkok uh, quite some time, so how do you solve the Bangkok traffic problem? <laughs> yes, I have a one line answer to that. <laughs> <laughs> you can't. How do you? I don't know. Uh, because I don't know. The, pres the precedents are not uh, simple. Uh, I mean, for instance, in London now, things are a lot better in the city, uh, just because there are fewer cars coming in. In fact, the great example that one gives is the Shard, which has, I think, all of 15 car parking spots. 
Okay. The whole building, uh, and the and the, the rationale is that they are basically dissuading you from coming into the city with a car. There's a tax that you pay if you come into the city, so there's a congestion tax. Tax. But then, if you're going to do all of that, which is to prevent people from driving into the city, you also then have to have a really sophisticated public transport system, buses and trains. We are on our way there. It's, it's not bad now, you know, the metro works pretty well and the buses. But do you feel that once the metro is in full swing that... Uh, no, it, it won't solve the problem unless you do other clever things like what they've done in London. That you, you figure out a way to tax people to come in, you, you, you know, make it difficult for people to drive into the city. Parking is exorbitantly expensive in New York and in, in London. Okay. So these dissuade people from coming in and then, you know, you have some way to manage it. But if you look at Malaysia, I mean cities in Malaysia and Thailand, where they do have great public transport systems, yeah. you can't move in that tra- traffic. I mean, you're stuck in traffic jams the whole time you're there. So yeah. I don't know what, I don't know if they're not doing you know, these other things, or maybe the cities are unstructured to make that possible. I don't know the answer, I mean, it's wrangling, but London may be a good precedent, but even that may not work here, I don't know. But you personally take the metro? No, I don't. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for that question. I should. In fact, we had an intern here, a very bright intern on SPA. She was here all of three days. And she realized that I lived in Indranaga and I worked here. She asked me point blank, why don't you take the metro? I don't have an answer to that. <laughs> so maybe I should. Yeah, I will. Okay, great. My New Year resolution. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, so, what are some of the plans for uh, yourself and Hundred Eyes going forward? Future plans or not a big one for planning, but I'll tell you what's coming up for us. Uh, and there are a couple of really interesting. There's there's a wonderful exhibition that uh, you know we've been invited to be part of with Aniket Bhagwat. Um, it's a it's a it's an exhibition on architecture for which you know we haven't really thought thought through what we want to do yet. Uh, but it is going to be some sort of a site-specific exercise here in Bangalore, so that's a nice charge for Manikit to do something. Um, and then uh, we are also uh, just recently, I mean, there's a there's a big meeting with all the architects. Uh, you know, the mayor had called for a meeting. Okay. And unfortunately, the mayor's term lasts only another eight months, and so I don't know what groundbreaking stuff we will produce in eight months. But nonetheless, it's a it's a good initiative. Yeah, it's something that may help us focus a little bit and maybe come up with some something. So these two exercises, which are not related to our architecture day to day work, are exciting, interesting. Right. Yeah. And uh, yeah, you also take part in a lot of competitions, right? So yes. Are you still uh, like? Taking part, or maybe well, we haven't done one in a while. Uh, I think the Indian Institute of Science, which is a year ago, was the last one that we did. Okay. There has been a call for a competition for a university in Chennai, which okay. uh, I mean, we put in our qualifications and we're waiting to hear. But yeah, we are really keen on competitions. Uh, we've become more and more suspicious and a bit cynical about competitions because okay. of all the news that you've heard yeah. of the war museum and the Delhi, uh, uh, Delhi museum. Some rightfully won and uh, was was cheated out of it, uh, and that fiasco in Amaravati, which serves them right, you know, now looks like it's not going to happen at all. Yeah. 
So there is, uh, and, and our British friends, you know, whom we did the Nalanda University with, okay. uh, which also, you know, we were very, very disappointed to lose, but nonetheless, I mean, to lose some, to win some, lose some, but the, the English architects are just not interested in participating in competitions in India anymore because they think that, you know, things are a bit, oh, everything's not very straightforward. It also takes a toll on you, right? Yeah, it's, right. A, it's a lot of effort. Uh, but I think even in, in spite of all of that, in spite of you know these all of these corruptions that exist, I think doing a competition is still a fantastic thing to do. It's like I don't know limbering up for the big race, you know, where you're just putting in you know the effort, doing something really quick. Uh, it's like real exercise, you know, like hardcore exercise, and then you're ready for the, the real show. You know? uh, so I think that that. Whatever you know, month or two months that you spend on on competitions, it, it crystallizes your ideas. It forces you to crystallize onto something. It, it forces you to you know be efficient about the way you work. There are many lessons to be had from uh, it's it's worth doing, even if everything you else. Won a couple of them. Uh, we won two. Uh, we've participated in many. So we won the Bangalore International Center competition in 2012, which took us seven years to complete. Okay. And uh, we won the Indian Institute of Science Award uh, competition last year. Uh, and hopefully, uh, in the next month or so, we'll tender out and start construction on that. So that's been a bit. I don't want to jinx it, but it's going to be easier than the Mango International Center right. competition. Alright, alright, sir. So coming to a close, uh, yeah. what advice would you give to young students and architects coming up? Oh, advice is a strong word. I would suggest that uh, um, architects, young young students, in spite of their incredibly demanding curriculum and stuff like that find time to escape from college and travel as much as possible in the time that you have in school. Um, travel with friends so that you all see see whatever it is you're seeing differently and exchange your ideas about what you see. Draw as much as you, you can when you travel. Yeah, I think for us uh, as students when we were young, I mean, uh, travel was really what made you know, made us the way we were, you know, and, and there are so many from our group, you know, who've, who've done reasonably well, you know, from the Paradigm guys, you know, Sandeep and Prairie, Manoj, Nagaraj Vastare, you know, Amresh from Coastal Associates. There are so many architects who've done wonderfully, you know, and, and I'd like to think that it is because of that ecosystem and because we all did, you know, these things, we traveled, we went to the bar, you know, spent a lot of time talking about things with each other. Okay. Uh, I think travel is the essential key thing. Yeah, I think you're the first person to give this uh, oh, really? travel. Yeah, so far, <laughs> that's pretty cool. Oh, well, yeah, it, it's what made the difference for me. All right. Drawing and traveling. Great. All right, sir, thanks for coming out to the show. It was a pleasure to have you on the show. And uh, we got to learn, especially me, I personally learned uh, quite a few things talking to you. So thanks, and uh, hopefully in the future as well, we would have you on that camp show. Thanks, delighted to be here. You have a really easy, wonderful air about you, so it's easy to, to have a chat. So thanks. Thanks, thanks for that comment. Bye.
You've been listening to the Ak Young Podcast. We're still building the community. Please share this knowledge with someone you know who could benefit. Just send them to akyoung.com where you'll find our free newsletter and for more podcast episodes. Search for the show on any major podcasting platform. Don't forget to subscribe where you're listening right now. And if you liked it, leave a rating or review. 